Hello to our international network of babblers. I'm Megan Thomas, and I'm thrilled to have you all rounded up today to listen to me chat to Ella Bertu, an author, bibliotherapist, and artist. Hi, Ella. How are you? Very well. It's great to see you and lovely to be here this morning on a lovely sunny day. Yes, thank you so much for coming in. I think I'm quite grateful for the sunny day here in Sussex. Where where are you based? Also in Sussex. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're in the same room, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, how, how's everything been for you? How I mean, obviously, everyone's had a really strange year, but how's everything been going? Well, actually, I've had quite a great year because for me, with bibliotherapy, life doesn't change that much being in lockdown because I'm working from home anyway. And I do most of my bibliotherapy sessions on Zoom or another video platform. So in a way, I've actually been busier than ever over the last year doing bibliotherapy sessions around the world. And I've done sessions in Canada and New York and Sydney, Australia, Melbourne, Singapore, Hong Kong, all over the place, which has been really fascinating. And I've actually loved and found it fascinating, the experience of bibliotherapy throughout lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, could you, for our audience, um, explain a little bit about what exactly bibliotherapy is? Sure. So bibliotherapy is the art of prescribing fiction to cure life's ailments. So I talk to a client all about their reading habits, what they love to read, why they love to read, where they love to read, how they love to read, any books that they might dislike as well, any genres of fiction that they would never touch. And I then talk to them about what's happening in their life as well right now. And I try to prescribe them the perfect books to read to fit in with their reading tastes and their current life situation. So, for instance, throughout lockdown, people have been going through all kinds of different kinds of issues, anxieties, separation from their loved ones, sense of isolation. And so I've been prescribing ways of them help being helped through the books that they read. And as a bibliotherapist, I prescribe fiction rather than non-fiction. So there are other kinds of bibliotherapists who like to prescribe non-fiction and they might be prescribing self-help and so on. But we bibliotherapists from the School of Life are big believers in the power of fiction and the way that fiction can affect you on a fundamental level. Mm -hmm. It's all so fascinating. And I wonder if you could explain kind of the process and where your books, so Ella has written the novel cure and the story cure, both A to Zs of uh, books to prescribe for different, different ailments in life, the story cure being for children, Prescriptions for adults to prescribe to children, if if that's described correctly. And I was wondering how you went from doing this as a profession to writing those books. Okay, so um, me and my friend and colleague Susan Elderkin started the bibliotherapy service at the School of Life in 2008. And we, between us, saw 
hundreds of clients over the years. And while we were talking to those clients, we've been obviously making notes and getting a sense of all the different prescriptions that we've given to those clients. And we thought after about five years that it was time to start putting those ideas and discoveries about which books worked best into a book. So we sat down and had a list of all the books that were the best, most kind of healing books that we knew or the most profound and brilliant books that we knew and also a list of all the ailments that people came to us with and we then put those ailments and cures together into the novel cure so in the novel cure you can look up any ailment from shyness to anxiety to exhaustion to having murderous thoughts and then you find a cure for that in the form of a novel. And then after we did the novel cure, which we found was a successful formula, we decided to put it into the same format for children. So we then wrote the story cure, which is uh, the same idea, but it was a little bit more complicated to write because with, with the novel cure, it was all about in a quite fun way, putting the right book to the right ailment. When it came to kids, we felt we had to be a little bit more serious about it. I mean, it still has lots of fun elements, but we didn't want to be too frivolous about it because obviously children have very real issues and anxieties that they need help with. So we did it was a slightly different approach with the story cure, but also the books that we've prescribed in the story cure are for all different age groups from naught to 18. So with each issue that a child has, which could be anything from bullying to fear of the dark to first love to first kiss, we have different age categories for each ailment and cure. So it was, it was just all a little bit more complicated to write with the story cure than it was with the novel cure. Mm. And yes, of course, kind of things that you don't want to traumatise an eight-year-old with a book that's written for a 17-year-old, for instance, or yeah, exactly. getting that age group right. Yeah. So your other book then, 30 Second Literature, is another very interesting non-fiction work where you're essentially... Um, explaining different types of writing, which is very exciting to read kind of as a as a writer, but I think would also be really interesting for people to just kind of get a sense of the history of writing. What inspired this this book? Well, that was really something I was asked to do because the Ivy Press have this whole lovely, beautiful collection of books a 30-second mythology, 30-second religion, 30-second philosophy, 30-second architecture, all these lovely different categories of books, which are, the idea is that you can get to know a subject in depth, but in kind of bite-sized chunks. So because I'd written The Novel Cure and The Story Cure, they asked me to do a similar thing for literature to the 32nd mythology and other subjects that they've got. And so I was the editor 
And I did write half of the book myself, but then I also had to find writers to write different sections. So somebody wrote the section on theatre, somebody else wrote the section on poetry, and I did all the sections on novels, fiction, and there's also in the book some really nice studies of individual authors. So, for instance, um, just trying to remember who they are, because there were, I think, six different authors that we go into depth about within the book, like Chimamanda Adichie was one of them. So it was a really fun, lovely book to do. And it's the kind of book that I would have loved to have myself when I was a student of English literature, because it actually packs in a huge amount of information into a very short space of time. So each page has about 300 words on it, and it gives you a kind of resume of that idea within the world of literature. So it's kind of a a really useful textbook of literature was, was the idea behind it. Yeah, and now I'm, I'm sorry if this is deep diving a little too much into um, one of the sections, but I was very fascinated by the Gutenberg parenthesis, which I hope I've pronounced correctly, which is obviously the academic theory that suggests kind of literature as a communication might be on its way out. Is this something you prescribe to? Is this something that you think is possible? And could you explain it a little bit? Well, yes, that idea came up while writing the book in thinking about the way that people increasingly use communication much more verbally than they do text. Um, So just looking at the next generation, the teenagers, my own children, they spend a lot of time communicating using their voices rather than using the written word. And even their writing is incredibly, um, (laughs) what's the word? (laughs) Condensed. And also abbreviated. Yeah. Because, you know, every time they write a text or a Snapchat, it's often very much uh, Mm. reduced to its bare minimum, to put it politely. And and all these platforms with character limits kind of teach them to be very concise, don't they? (laughs) So, in some ways, it's a good thing that they're learning how to be concise with words. But I've also noticed with my own kids that they often just record themselves speaking rather than write down write things down so when writing the book 30 second literature with my team we discussed this idea that maybe it could be that text is actually on its way out and that people might end up returning to purely oral histories and oral communication which I do think could actually happen I mean I think text is going to be with us for a a lot longer and I'm really hopeful that books will be surviving into the next century but I also think it is possible that it uh, text and writing could become a very archaic entity in a hundred years time. Oh, it's it's scary and um, liberating at the same time. It's it's kind of quite a democratizing thing that kind of people can express themselves how how they are comfortable, but at the same yeah. time, 
words are so important. <laughs> I know, and we're obviously lovers of literature and all mm. things written. And I mean, I don't think it's going to disappear in the blink of an eye, but I would be very interested in 500 years' time if people are still actually writing things or typing things or oh, whether really? they've actually gone back to just using words and recording things and sending words somehow digitally yeah. around the world, maybe orally, not in a written form. Yeah, maybe we'll have TikTok novels. That would be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and so I'd love to talk a bit more. It seems like all the work that you've done is is largely collaborative. And even that kind of represents what you're doing as well in your bibliotherapy. It's all kind of communication. It's not just you prescribing something based on what you think, but rather you learning from what people are experiencing and then adapting what you're doing to suit that. And I wonder if it was kind of similar when you were co-writing your books, that kind of collaborative nature, were you feeding off each other? Very much so, yes. When we wrote the novel Cure, Susan and I were constantly in communication, even though she was actually in America when we were writing it and I was here in Sussex. So we only had a window of an hour every day when we could speak to each other because of school children constraints basically between 2 and 3 p.m. UK time was our moment to speak um, but we were using Google Docs to write each of our entries so one of us would write an entry the other one would uh, edit it on Google Docs and we would keep going back and forth to continue that process and it was completely collaborative of one of us would write an entry and the other person would completely change it so <laughs> it was a constant back and forth mm. completely collaborative affair so I have since done writing on my own and it's much less fun <laughs> <laughs> you know that was obviously going to be my next question was you've done so much work and you know so many novels you've obviously are a huge reader would you write your own fiction novel I would love to. And that's something I've been simmering for a few years. And I hope to make that happen sometime in the next five years or so. So I, I have got a couple of ideas which I'm working on slowly. But then also because I'm an artist too, I always have lots of projects on the go. So it's not going to happen quickly, sadly. I understand your painting process is you listen to books while you're doing that. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that? That's fascinating. Yeah, so ever since I left Cambridge University and then went to art school to study fine art, I managed to marry my twin passions of art and reading by listening to books while painting. And I started off with a kind of portable cassette and CD player, which I had in my studio, and I listened to tapes while I was painting and gradually evolved with the technology of the time. So now I listen to Audible on my phone constantly while I'm painting. And the books very much inform the paintings. So whenever I'm doing a painting, I'm always affected by the audiobook that I'm listening to as well. 
So sometimes think elements of the book creep into the painting too, uh, which is never the plan. So when I'm doing a painting, it's normally based on a landscape or a place that I've been. And then, so that might be like the painting behind me. I don't know if it's visible. Yeah. Um, is from Ithaca in Greece. And it's, uh, just give a little view of it there. <laughs> um, it's based on the place Polis Bay, where Ulysses set forth on his sails from. And I did actually listen to Circe while I was painting that. And that was a fantastic experience because even though Circe isn't on the same island, it's very much the same um, feeling, mindset and feeling. Yeah. So that definitely crept into the, the process of painting, which wouldn't be obvious to the viewer because there's obviously no kind of mythological creatures in the painting. <laughs> but the hopefully the magic of the book is passed into the into the painting mm. as well and what what a wonderful talent to be able to distill your surroundings into something tangible because it just means you can take it anywhere with you and you can make other people feel the things that you felt which is lovely that's my hope yeah and i i do feel that both of my twin passions work really well together and balance each other out I think I would find it very difficult to purely work as a bibliotherapist or purely work as an artist because for me they they are both necessary to each other really mm. and I wonder when it comes to um bibliotherapy is there a kind of a point where you recommend someone kind of seeks medical um help with with their sessions or do you find that it's something that they don't do instead of, but rather as an accompaniment to that sort of thing? I would always say it should be an accompaniment if someone actually is going through serious psychological mm. issues. Uh, every now and then I do have a client who really has a strong psychological issue that they do need extra help with, and I do then refer them to a psychologist. Generally, people come to me knowing that bibliotherapy is not a, a pure medical therapy. And if ever they're under the illusion that it is, then I tell them um, that I'm not a qualified therapist because that none of us at the School of Life uh, who are bibliotherapists are actually qualified therapists. We've uh, learnt our craft through practice and we are experts in books and reading and fiction but we're not qualified medical therapists so I do always have to make that clear if someone comes to me which has occasionally happened that they've had a serious psychological issue and they've hoped to just use bibliotherapy as a as a cure and I've always said you do need to use both at the same time. But I think bibliotherapy is a brilliant adjunct to other psychotherapies. And I've sometimes worked with a psychotherapist who is working with a patient who realises that I can bring extra 
um, ideas and positive influences with bibliotherapy. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful. Uh, anyone who's read a brilliant book or a book that's really stood out to them has had that experience of a book feeling like it's kind of reached out and grabbed you and shook you or warmed you or um, made you feel um, like someone else has experienced the same thing as you. So it's certainly absolutely. And I've also spoken to quite a few psychotherapists who've ended up having a copy of the novel Cure in their <laughs> waiting room. Um, and also who have used the book as a kind of medical aid. And it's really great whenever I've been able to talk to psychotherapists about using fiction as part of the process of helping someone. And I do think it, you know, genuinely people can go into great depth discovering the essence of a novel and allowing it to speak to their subconscious as a means of helping them to see their life in a more positive light or flip over some of the difficulties that they're going through and see them in a different way. And so now I know this is probably quite a tricky question and something you, you've been doing sessions throughout lockdown, of course, but do you have any go-to lockdown blues recommendations of novels? That is a really difficult question <laughs> because it's always different for different people what they're going to love and actually and and what's going to help them it's also been really interesting throughout lockdown people have had different needs so at the beginning of this whole pandemic I quite often met clients who really wanted to read dystopian novels <laughs> because they felt like they could learn from them and maybe find positive ways of dealing with what was increasingly becoming a dystopian world. Yeah. But then as the pandemic has continued and lockdown has gone on for such a long time, people have more and more not wanted to read dystopian novels, but <laughs> read things which are much more positive, perhaps, yeah. and calming. So it might have started off with everyone reading uh, books like Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel or... Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, or even The Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. But now people are much more wanting to read books like The Overstory mm. by Powers, which is a fantastically calming and lovely book, which is also has kind of positive ideas about uh, the way that we interact with nature. And also books like The Man Who Planted Trees by John Giono, which is a very calm lovely beautiful short novella with wonderful pictures in it so I've been prescribing more of that kind of book and also books like Home and Gilead by Marilyn Robinson which are very again calming reflective kind of internalized types of books which are very much about being at home in one place so it, you can't really say that there are particular go-to novels that I'm constantly recommending, but there have been themes of books that I think have been really helpful. And actually, one of the books I prescribed a lot last year is Piranesi by um, Suzanne Collins, which is a really wonderful novel, which I think reflects lockdown in a particularly interesting way as well, because it's all about a man who's kind of trapped in a slightly 
parallel world. I don't want to give away too much to anyone that hasn't read it, but it is a really fabulous book. And there's something amazingly calming, reflective and fascinating about that book. It it starts off slowly, but it becomes a bit of a thriller. And so that's been a perfect accompaniment to lockdown for lots of people too. Wonderful. And then because this is kind of an arts and creative and culture show, I was wondering as well if you could give a recommendation for writer's block or even just creative block in general. Okay, yeah. So the book that we have in the novel Cure for Writer's Block is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which is a fantastic, gorgeous novel written by the author of 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) And she was actually in Canada and she was missing England. So it's a book that is partly very nostalgic for England and it really sings the praises of being in England but it's a great book for writer's block because the father in the book of the 17 year old protagonist is suffering from extreme writer's block and he was a very successful novelist 10 years ago and the family take an extreme uh, approach to solving his writer's block which I won't reveal because you have to read the book to discover. But it is a very effective approach and it works for him. But also the cure works on another level too because the book is so tantalisingly brilliantly written that the the way the author savours writing itself makes you, as a budding writer, want to get out there and write again so if if you're reading it and you've got writer's block it's a book that really makes you think ah why aren't I writing right now I (laughs) have to go and put things down well thank you Ella it's been so fantastic to chat to you and so inspiring actually this has made me want to go and paint something or write something (laughs) Um, or read something actually (laughs) more likely Um, yeah (laughs) all at the same time (laughs) Um, thank you so much (laughs) I'll, I'll let you know if it works if this is, um, it's been so good to chat to you and have a great weekend and thank you you too well thanks so much Megan it's been really lovely to come on to Babel and be able to have a chat thank you for tuning into Babel today Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the start, we're so happy to have you and hope you enjoy the arts and literature interviews available. This is a free platform to project the voices of those starting out and those who've spent years journeying to this point in their career. From the new to the renowned, the 60-year-old debut novelist to the 20-year-old musician, we want to babble with everyone. So get in touch if this is you or if you'd like to do some interviewing yourself. You'll find us on Twitter at babbleshow underscore on Instagram at Babbleshow and on www.babbleshow.com.